Welcome to the GXM podcast, where we explore news and topics around video game music and the intersection between the games and music industries. We aim to publish fortnightly. We failed of late, but uh, we're going to get back to that. So please be sure to subscribe. My name's Tom Quilfell. I work for game soundtrack label Laced Records, and I podcast with the Kanan Rince crew. Joining me is journalist Matt Ombler, who has interviewed game composers, music artists, and others for titles including Enemy, The Washington Post, and Wired. Matt, you're back! I am. It has been, uh, it feels like it's been forever. <laughs> I have been getting married. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. I have been on a lovely honeymoon in Japan with some rest days in Dubai afterwards. And yeah, it's it's nice to be it's nice to be back. Go on, tell us what video game music themed things you did for your wedding. You must have done something. Oh uh, yeah, right. So you know, and you know what? I'm gutted. There's no video footage of this, but I hired a string quartet. I wanted a string quartet anywhere, but then I found a string quartet that takes arrangements. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna commission four arrangements. And I chose, or I say I, me and Liz chose two. So we chose a Studio Ghibli song from Howl's Moving Castle. I've forgotten the name of the song. Nice. Is it just the one that goes... I think it was that. You know what? I actually think it was that one. I think it's just the main sort of theme waltz yeah, or something. I think it was. And then chose You're Not Alone from Final Fantasy IX because there's a really... Me and Liz don't have that many songs with, like, sentimental attachment, but there's a weird thing there when we were back from a night out and it was when me and Liz first started dating and I convinced her I could ballroom dance and put on the Distant Worlds version of that song, which was real funny at the time, and then realised that I had two arrangements left. So I was like, okay, cool. Um, Liz is preoccupied doing other wedding things. I'm just going to take the lead and step up and choose these other two arrangements myself. So I chose... Doom BFG Division. It was the Halo 3 menu music because I had a couple of schoolmates there who just used to spend all our days playing Halo. And I just, honestly, that was like more of like a for, for the bands thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was class. Um, and then also Scarla's theme from Chrono Trigger which is just a song that I absolutely love and thought, this is going to work really well for a string quartet, and I've never actually heard a string quartet version of this song. And the string quartet, they absolutely smashed it out of the park. The Didsbury String Quartet, they were called. So if you live up north and would like... So they've got they've got the sheet music now. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So if you <laughs> yeah. want to hear those pieces at your wedding, do get in touch and set, tell them on Blissent. Yeah, but yeah, it, it was amazing, man. It was absolutely class. Very nice. Well, we'll be talking a little bit later about your experience of uh, immersing yourself in the soundtrack buying experience mm. in Japan. It, it looked from the photos that you had. Um, you had an incredible time doing that. I, I I worry for your poor wife that she just got dragged from store to store. But we'll we'll get to that a bit later. Um, we've got. Uh, I've had a, a busy time whilst you've been away. I did the the interview with Colin uh, Colin Yost about video game A and R uh, last time. So if you haven't heard that yet, go and check that out. And. I also did another interview, which I will mention briefly a bit later. And I went to two concerts in quite short order. There was the Starfield performance with the London Symphony Orchestra at the London Symphony Orchestra's home at St Luke's Church in London. I was invited there. Thank you very much to Bethesda's Mark Robbins, who uh, sort of organised it. And he's been instrumental uh, in things like a Skyrim concert several years ago, Fallout and uh, concert. Um, he's a huge video game music fan. He was behind the campaign to get video game music into the classic FM Hall of Fame all those years ago. Um, but yeah, thanks to Mark for inviting me down to the to the Starfield event. It was incredible. It was lovely to see. You know, I mean, it's the LSO, isn't it? And Inon Zur kind of 
passionately conduct the conducted the first and last pieces the whole concert's up on youtube for anyone to check out uh, and they absolutely should uh, interestingly the producer of that show was the final symphony producer thomas booker uh, who organized the camera crew and the orchestra and the the venue and everything and and was the sort of overall producer of it from a from a logistics standpoint which was interesting to note and it was just yeah it was an incredible evening i got to sat, sit next to one of the former editors of cvg magazine uh, who was editing it while i started getting into games magazines back in 1997 so that was that was quite weird um talking to him about that but uh, everyone should go and check that out and then matt devastatingly you had to give up your ticket to to sonic symphony and, it, was the, uh, the f- we- it was the first show of the the world tour it was the matinee performance in london at the barbican and i took your ticket and i felt terrible doing so because it was an absolute stonker <laughs> of a show <laughs> it was incredible the less time we can spend talking about this the better because genuinely I am so gutted I couldn't be there because I must have... I think I've watched the recorded version of that show um, on YouTube about seven or eight times now, and I have a very sentimental attachment to not just the music in Sonic the Hedgehog, but especially the kind of more alternative stuff in Sonic Adventure 2 from Crush 40. So, yeah, um, without talking about it too much just (laughs) tell me how how different was it to the like were there any surprises for people who had already seen the um recorded version that's on youtube i really don't know there there was definitely some new material that they sort of said at the time oh here's a new one or whatever but Mm. Um, that might have been the sonic frontiers stuff yeah i i don't know i haven't really watched the 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 sort of existing youtube video um, and later on in the show, actually, uh, I, so I went to the show with uh, Richard Stokes, who, if anyone's been to any of these video game concerts, you've probably seen Richard there. I mean, he must have been to 20, 30 concerts up and down the country. He gets to every single video game con- concert he possibly can. And um, he and I did a, a mini interview on my iPhone outside the venue just after we'd come out and we were buzzing and everyone <laughs> around us was buzzing. So uh, you'll get to hear some of that kind of contact high, that sonic contact high uh, later on. <laughs> I'll run the interview. And also in the meantime, there have been some exciting uh, uh, trailers, states of play, Nintendo Directs. I particularly um, really liked the Final Fantasy VII Rebirth trailer that they dropped, the announcement date trailer. They had a a kind of action version of the main theme, which sounded new and exciting. I bet it wasn't new. I bet someone will tell me it was an old track. But um, they kind of showed all the nostalgic Final Fantasy VII stuff in that trailer without really hinting at what they've changed for the story or what's going to get shifted around. So it was just like a big big nostalgia um play i think for them with a couple of kind of gags like cloud on a on a um what are those things on wheels that you stand up on segway duh i i hate it's that honestly from seeing people <laughs> i've got a rational <laughs> hatred for people on segways and like scooters electric scooters so i saw that and just went uh <laughs> well it was pretty much the as far as i can tell it's one of the one of the only new sort of things everything else seemed to be like you know here's what you remember from the mm. game um did you pick anything out from any of these uh, recent sort of trailer splat yeah I, I guess sticking i mean without going into the music real quickly i thought it was interesting to see a bit of gameplay footage in that final fantasy trailer that hinted at an open world section because i'd ruled that out so I'm interested to see what comes out of that, but I think honestly one of one of my biggest highlights was F Zero fans, Nintendo fans have been waiting for a new F Zero game for over twenty years since the <laughs> release of what was the last one called? I think it was GP Legend on the Game Boy Advance. A new F Zero game got announced. It wasn't a Switch game. It was essentially a battle royale version of the F Zero on SNES. It's better than nothing, I guess, but that just got me thinking and kind of getting nostalgic for F-Zero music, which a lot of people, if you've played the F-Zero games, especially um, 64 on Nintendo 64 and GX on GameCube, 
they're associated with like guitar heavy like power metal music but i took this as an opportunity to revisit the 1992 officially licensed jazz arrangement album featuring none other than the legendary saxophonist mark russo of the doobie brothers who is no stranger oh to the world of video <laughs> game music because he also composed all of the music in the sims games that no way. Love, yeah, that lovely smooth jazz music that so many people have fallen in love with. So, oh, um, crazy. if you just go on YouTube and type in F Zero Jazz Album, you can listen to the thing in full. absolutely incredible and i hope it played some part in setting the turn for the <laughs> f-zero arrangements in the um mario kart games because this is like yeah. full-blown jazz fusion it's off the wall just yeah it's intense nice i never thought that the doobie brothers would come up in this podcast but there, <laughs> there, you, we, go. there we go there we there go, you go. And, and someone made the point um, that if there was going to be a, a new shiny F-Zero, they'd probably save it for Switch 2 at this yeah. stage, you know, because racing games are good to show off yeah. new consoles generally. But we must get to the news because we have so much to talk about that, that's happened, that's that's come up, things that came and went since uh, we last spoke. So well, let's get into the news. <laughs> So first up, um, it is already over, sadly, but it's all available to stream. There was a online games music festival called Save and Sound, which was run by the uh, the developer Bedtime Digital Games, who made Figment, Figment Two, and the Forest Quartet, which are sort of music related games, heavily music related games, I'd say, very thoughtful and clever experiences uh, worth checking out those games anyway but this uh, three-day festival had music from some 70 games or something and um, some absolute killers in there you know Chia and Baldur's Gate 3 and just so much really really good stuff and they had a lot of kind of behind the scenes videos um, live perform- live recorded performances um, it, I didn't get a chance to catch much at the time. I only found out about it on the first day. So I recommend everybody go back and, and check out, just sort of dip in and see what takes your fancy, really, um, of the, the many, many games. I caught, there was a talk by Jonas Turner, who is a audio professional and composer who's worked for many, many years on some huge indie games. He's handling all the audio for a game called Go Mecha Ball. And he just gave this brilliant talk about, and he, and he showed examples and he tried to keep it really tight and really brief, but kind of talking to layperson game players about exactly what, you know, kind of differences in sound design, little tricks and triggers and engine information he's getting to, to set up procedural um, sound design things and randomizers and all of this clever stuff. And then, the uh, soundtrack he's created that's interactive as well. It was so clever, but also the way he presented it was really good to understand, for, I think, for someone who doesn't work in in audio. And um, and I said so on Twitter, and he got in touch and said, hey, do you want to interview for the podcast? So we did the interview. That's in the, in the bank already, and that will be coming up, uh, I think, next time, probably next fortnight, depending on what else we've got, because we've got some very exciting guests lined up um yeah so matt I, I i know you haven't seen any of this yet you you're still catching up after getting back from honeymoon but i definitely recommend just sort of dipping in maybe have a look at the games list and sort of see if there's anyone that you want to so tm tmnt shredder's revenge is in there as well i don't exactly know if if t lopez did what he did for that um so so definitely Check check that out, and I know you've been loving uh, the Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood. Oh, it's brilliant soundtrack as well. So you should probably um, check that out as well, at least. Very quickly, a uh, Goodbye Volcano High was released, which is an indie game that's sort of a visual novel 
with rhythm game elements. There's a kind of Battle of the Bands storyline in there. Uh, it's got an 83 on Metacritic, so obviously people are really vibing on it. So I haven't had a chance to to check it out, but I just wanted to, to flag that up for people. There's a couple of things happening at EGX. We already mentioned there's Chipsell, there's a David Houston talk, but they've just announced that Ready Singer One are uh, it's the only choir in the UK to ex- exclusively sing songs from video games and film, and they'll be on the EGX Theatre on Sunday, the fifteenth of October at three pm. So I think that's spread out now over three days. Those um, the Houston thing, the Chipsall thing, and the and Ready Singer One. So depending on what day you go, you might be able to catch something video game music related. There was a big story this week that that probably would have been bigger. Um, if the huge Unity controversy wasn't happening at the same time. But Terence Lee, a.k.a. Lifeformed, took to uh, Twitter, to X, to say that he'd been the victim of a DMCA takedown fraud, uh, that he'd been threatened via messenger from a random person saying that they'd get their his music taken down. And they did follow through that as far as I can tell. And that's the soundtracks to Tunic, Fastfall, Umbra and Undiscovery. And they've been taken down from various streaming platforms. As far as I'm aware, he was very, the uh, turret's very upset about it, as you can imagine. And the most upsetting part of it was he was trying to work out what recourse there was, what what you can actually do in that situation if you've gone through a distributor like DistroKid or, or TuneCore or something like that. Do you have any protection against um, a fraudulent claim under the DMCA takedown system. And uh, I don't know if there's actually been a, a, a resolution to this. As I say, the Unity story kind of overshadowing slightly. Bing! So this is Tom binging in from the future on edit day. Fortunately, as of September 22nd, the Tunic and other soundtracks seem to be back up, according to Lifeformed. Apparently, they submitted a counterclaim to their distributor and waited two weeks. They also had a lawyer try to talk to their distributor to move things along. Apparently, they'll share more details in future. And as a nice bonus, they've released lots of extra details and some piano sketches on their Twitter. So definitely go and check that out if you like that soundtrack like I did. Bing! And then also, to add to the story, apparently the Deltarune Chapter 1 soundtrack has also received a fraudulent takedown notice. Obviously, we know there are nasty people on the internet and it seems like this could be another way for kind of malicious actors now to spend a few weeks torturing um, indie games and indie game soundtrack uh, creators, unfortunately. Hopefully, you know, we hope for good news at the end of the story, but there's none forthcoming at the moment. Deltarune is obviously made by Toby Fox, who created Undertale. It's the sort of next part of the Undertale saga. So, I mean, this could get bigger, you know, if it it sort of revealed a weakness in the system, I think, where there there doesn't seem to be much protection for smaller creators. No, this has been going on for a long, long time in terms of people taking advantage of this system. I don't know why people do it. It's probably just losers trolling. Um, but it is terrifying to know that an individual can just make fraudulent claims... And it doesn't seem to be a case of the reviewed or whatever or checked for validity. It's just a case of whoever's had those claims made against them, their channel is locked or whatever else. I think it is worth mentioning that issuing false takedowns is incredibly illegal. And if you are found out, you will be punished, like, massively. Like The first thing I can think of is, I don't know if you remember this, there was um, a YouTuber called Lord Nazer who was uploading tracks from the Destiny 2 soundtrack, but Nazer basically made loads of fake DMCA notices to other creators who were uploading the music, saying it was his, and Bungie is suing him for a whopping $7.6 million. So there are repercussions for taking part, for taking advantage of this stuff. And hopefully something will happen, but God, how how long has the DMCA actually been debated for now as a piece of legislation? 
like and nothing's changed so hopefully more i'd like to think that the visibility on stuff like this is hopefully stuff is maybe happening behind closed doors and we're going to see a change to it but it just seems ridiculous that someone's livelihood let's be honest someone's livelihood can essentially be affected in this way but that is my that's my ted talk um it angers me daily <laughs> if i had the time i would very much like to write something on this in terms of reaching out to video game composers specifically and finding out how many people have been affected by something like this because i'm sure this is just one of like many other examples yes i'm glad you brought up that that destiny stuff because of course the the implicit well it has been said in some articles that that obviously a company like bungie can afford to kind of set the hounds on someone but uh, a, a small creator or a solo creator can't, you know, might not be able to afford to, doesn't know the steps, doesn't know what their rights are, might not be that familiar with copyright. And um, yeah, it, I'm sure it's really upsetting, really disturbing to to have something like this happen. So fingers crossed for a positive outcome. I was going to say, I feel, like, I feel like I've brought the turn down a little bit. Shall I bring it back up now with the news that I found? Let's bring it Let's bring it back up. Uh, so Matt, there's a couple of stories here that, that we would have done last time, but mm. we didn't get the chance to record before you went away. So, so fill me in. So this is going back to August now, but I think it's still worth mentioning. Blackpink, the K-pop band, one of the biggest K-pop bands in the world, um, they debuted one of their new singles through their mobile game. So that went down a hit with fans. Elsewhere, and this is a game that I have been playing quite a lot while I have been on my honeymoon, Sea of Stars, which I think is fair to say the spiritual successor to Chrono Trigger. So much so that Chrono Trigger's composer, Yasunori Mitsuda, has even contributed a couple of songs to the soundtrack. reason I wanted to mention this is there's a really cool documentary done by The Escapist, and we'll put a link in the podcast description which explores the making of the game, but also dives into the soundtrack. A cool fact that I learned, and again, this is something that I found very impressive as a little mosher, the lead composer slash audio designer on the game is a guy called Eric W. Brown, who used to play drums in the metal band Necrogoblin. And <laughs> if anybody hasn't heard of Necrogoblin, basically imagine, you know that band Lorde that um, won... Eurovision, the uh, hard yes. rock, yeah, yeah. yeah. Necrogoblin are literally a. It's a band where it's essentially like fun, upbeat kind of like metal, but all of the band members dress in like these like wookies over the top. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly it. But yeah, um, genuinely, I got me to dive back into them, and I forgot how much I really enjoyed listening to him. Probably one of the biggest stories is Sky. Children of the Light breaking a Guinness World Record for the largest number of players in a virtual environment. And worth this is concurrent as well, and like on on the actual same screen. So when we see these figures for Fortnite concerts or Roblox concerts or whatever else, and it's like, yep, three million people, ten million or whatever checked this out. In the case of Sky Children of the Light, it was like 10,000 players on screen in a single server. Um, and that was for a replay of the Aurora concert experience, which I really wanted to watch, but once again missed as I was not here. Did you get round to checking that out? I didn't know. Um, it's been a busy, busy few weeks for me too. It has. But yeah, great work there from um, the That Game Company team and Aurora 2. Um, again, I've been banging this drum for ages but genuinely one of the most if not the most impressive in-game concerts that i've attended um and then finally starfield is out yet another triple a game to lose hours of our lives to imagine dragons have dropped a single inspired by the game um we'll put a link in the description it's a really good listen and i wanted to mention it because it's cool to see a band that are genuine gamers and i'm sure have been really excited to dive into starfield getting involved with writing music uh, that was used to accompany the game so you can find a link to that in the episode description I'm sure there's plenty of other news out there but for the sake of this 
podcast not going on for another two hours. I think that's pretty much it on the news front. I'm sure there'll be there'll be more next time round anyway. So let's get to our kind of split topic. Uh, I'm going to come back to the interview about with uh, Rich about the Sonic Symphony, and um, Matt wasn't didn't didn't hear that interview, so he was <laughs> sparing his heart. Thank you. But first, Matt, for the topic, we're going to do a lazy one. We're going to uh, I'm going to interview you, and we're going to talk about your experiences in the home of. Well, not the home of video game music, but one of the spiritual homes of video game music, I would say. Well, I think that's a fair... They were the first ones putting out physical game soundtrack media. That I think that's more than fair. Yeah, the first uh, video game concerts, I'm fairly sure, yeah. uh, in the world in Japan. So, um, yeah, let's, let's have a little conversation about your experiences going into CD shops and what you saw and how it kind of uh, went for you, how much you ended up spending. Where did you head to first in Japan? Or was it all Tokyo-based? So I did some research in advance, reached out to a couple of people, shout out to Andy at VGC, who gave me a list of places to go, and James Milk as well, who, we, who we've had on the podcast to talk about um, his friend Kenjina also wrote me a really comprehensive email of just, here's all the places you need to go, just general tourist stuff, but also, obviously, you love video game soundtracks, so go to these places. Tower Records, I know that isn't something that's exclusive to Japan, but my first time stepping into a Tower Records, so there was a lot of cool stuff in there. I guess the only way to describe it, for those of you who are based in the UK, is... Imagine when you had like Virgin Music and even like the flagship HMV stores in big cities, just wall to wall, just video game music, DVDs and stuff like that. So I picked up a lot of the Square Enix stuff there, the the typical CDs and stuff. So all of that, I got a lot of Final Fantasy stuff from there. I got a couple of Distant World CDs, I think, and then tom all of those kind of remix albums that i go on about all the time from school they're really like eclectic ones there's one that i picked up called cafe sq which has some really cool remixes on of um square enix music done by there's some tunes on there from one of my favorite artists the reign of kinder who i used to listen to loads Another remix album, which is just called Beer SQ, which was basically marketed as just, I think, music to drink to, like something along those lines. <laughs> it's really rowdy, just like party music, basically, just like music you'd get up to and stomp around to. So Tower, Tower was cool. Was that in Tokyo? Yeah, Tower was in Tokyo. So that was literally where we stayed. We stayed at a hotel called Cerulean Tower, and that's about... A 10-minute walk from Janoshibuya Crossing, the really big one that you see in photos all the time with the, mm-hmm. like, zebra, say zebra crossing. You know, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That basically, so it's kind of just a short walk away from there, so... It's the centre of the centre, isn't it? Yeah. Um, just, for, just for context, I mean, the two markets in the world where CD sales kind of were propped up longer mm. than anywhere else were Japan and Germany. Yeah. So... I can't even think in London if there is that experience anymore of a, of just a massive CD shop because I, I remember Tower Records yeah. years ago and like Piccadilly Circus and remembering that but it's gone they're all gone HMV you know that experience I don't think really can be had in in London anymore so it's it's it, the same experience as walking into a vinyl store do you know what I mean it's exactly mm. the same where I think the one thing that going to Japan has made me realise is the appreciation for physical media. Like, it, it's absolutely mind-blowing how how much this stuff is valued over there. And 
I shared a cool picture on LinkedIn, I'm not sure if you saw it, where a lot of the CD stores that you go into, and not even like the independent ones, the chains as well, I like it when you go into a shop, whether it's a game shop or a music shop or whatever else, and or, or a bookshop. They do this at Waterstone, right, where you can walk in and they've got, do you know where staff members have like notes and it says, name of staff member would recommend this book or this DVD or whatever else. And there'll be a little handwritten note on why they like it and why you as a customer should check it out. These maybe managers or shop assistants were kind of setting up like point of sale displays for new artist releases and stuff. And I know it wasn't promo material because it was that same thing. Do you know when you kind of stick together two pieces of A4 and then draw a letter on them and then do that. There were displays <laughs> that just looked like an arts and crafts thing, but obviously had the artistic talent of like, it It, it was mind-blowing. There was a full, I went into one store and it had a entire artwork thing, just like a promotional thing dedicated to Dragon Quest's composer. And it was just all Dragon Quest CDs. Nice. And it was obvious that someone's just gone... It might be just a, it might be a stock clearance thing, do you know what I mean? But then I'd also be like, well, why have you got all of these Dragon Quest like CDs? That's a little bit weird. So I think that is just genuinely someone going, here's everything that you need to know about Dragon Quest's composer, who was obviously also a really famous Japanese composer as well. His name is what's his name, Tom? Koichi Sugiyama. There we go. So really big name um, in the Japan music scene as well. And it was just his entire display there for him, which I thought was amazing. The second main chain i went into have you heard of book off or hard off no so imagine cash converters or any kind of pawn shop chain in the uk and obviously when i say pawn shop i don't mean adult material i mean p-a-w-n yeah yeah yeah. essentially one of those just a second hand store but a chain just for geeks right so it's all just manga and dvds video games Quite a lot of fashion and stuff as well. That's the other thing I noticed about Japan. There's a huge second-hand market for pre-owned clothing. Mm. A lot of it really fashionable stuff. Like every other store we went in just had loads of pre-owned like Louis Vuitton and all real stuff as well, not bootleg. Um, But yeah, these book-off and hard-offs, just loads of anime figures as well, but just resealed in plastic bags. Do you know what I mean? Because the original package isn't there. But found loads of stuff in there and what what criteria were you using like what was the leash you were on budget wise and were you going to buy stuff where you were confident what it is or do you throw in a few random random things i i saved up money in advance and i told myself before i went not joking i was like i'm gonna buy a suitcase when i'm out there and fill it up because you know how weird my music taste is when it comes to video game soundtracks. (laughs) A lot of the stuff I listened to was released in the 80s or 90s as like a limited run. It never got a worldwide release. It's only available in Japan. So when I've looked at prices on Discogs, it's always been $50 or something. And I'm not paying $50 for a soundtrack CD, no matter how much I love it, because I'm probably going to get taxed on it when it arrives. And if it arrives, it's probably not going to arrive in one piece. Yeah. So I drew up a list in my head of the grails that I wanted, like Kenji's D2 Remixes album. I think I've played one of the tracks on there. Of course. Um, yeah, but could not find that. I wanted that on record. Couldn't oh, find no. that. I know I was gutted, but that was like a remix album. So then it the, the thing that frustrated me was I think a lot of the stuff I wanted also bordered on the j-pop it's not going to be under osts it's just going to be under the general music thing and that's where you've just got like 10 aisles yeah 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 harder to find stuff to go through yeah all in japanese as well so i just couldn't i was like i'll just stick to the soundtrack sections otherwise liz is gonna beat the crap out of me do you know what i mean just stood there being patient (laughs) look i'm looking at my watch just like 30 minutes we've been here now okay liz you all right yeah i'm just there's a lot of questionable manga in here. Yep, Liz, stay the hell away from that section. <laughs> like, do not go in that section. But yeah, loads of cool CDs. I was picking up stuff like the what the in-house bands were putting out. So Sega, Sound Team Band, uh, SST, 
got a 1985 soundtrack from them. I got my Discogs up. Right, so the first thing I did when I got back was I started on the very time-intensive task of uploading my Discogs page so I can quickly go through some of the stuff that I got. So as an example, Namco compilation soundtrack for Winning Run, released in 1989. DRAM, Sega Arcade selection. I think I picked this up for like 300 or 400 yen. The highest it sold for in Discogs is 145 quid. So, you, you, yeah, you get things like that where it's just... So I guess to go back to your original question, how was I shopping for stuff? It was a mix of I was seeing stuff and finding it and being like, oh, my God, I can't believe I've found this. One of my favourites, Hyperdrive by um, Sega Sound Team, uh, released in 1990, uh, Discogs average sale price, 35.60. Again, I think I picked that up for like a few hundred yen. Mm. Which is what? Like a quid. Literally, like two or three quid, I think. Really? Yeah, a hundred, wow. hundred yen is... Because, because this stuff is like, what, just like bargain bin? A hundred yen into pounds, and I, I definitely picked up a couple of soundtracks for, I think they were more like EPs, though, for a hundred yen. Um, 50p. So in Japan, some of this stuff is just obscure bargain bin material, but to you, it's like holy grail material. It's not that different to walking into a, a British Heart Foundation or Oxfam, right, and looking at the cds in there those are charity shops for worldwide listeners like seeing the charity shops and picking up cds for like a quid or something it was similar to that over there but what blew my mind was some of these there we go konami kakai club um soundtrack for snatcher released in 1989 i got a shin megami tensei soundtrack uh, released in 1991 and you pick these up and you look at them and you check the date on the back and go oh 1980, 1990. If that was the UK, that'd be like in bits, cracked. In Japan, it's still got like the original receipt in. It's still got the Irby strip on the inside. It's still got all <laughs> of the inserts in like near mint condition. So that was absolutely blowing my mind. So I, I picked up so much stuff out there. And then also, I'm not gonna, I was just throwing stuff in the basket as well just because it was cheap and it looked cool. <laughs> and I was like, it's in Japanese. I can't read that. I'll put it into my Mac, which has a CD drive when I get back and listen to it. It was quite interesting as well, finding out how many... I've always sworn by Discogs and VGMDB, but a lot of the stuff... Well, not a lot of the stuff, but there was a couple of the soundtracks that I picked up that weren't listed on either, mm. which is then when I second-guessed myself and was like, I swear to God, if I've picked up a bootleg... I'm going to be so, but legit soundtracks that were just because they were released in Japan, they'd not kind of been archived by a Western audience or whatever else. So. Yeah, that makes sense. So what, one thing I'm curious about is like cover art and uh, and CD art. Do Japanese CDs sort of place a premium on that? Is there been a trend towards the kind of minimalistic because i just because my vague impression of like japanese cds is just it's quite busy on the front and a lot of text yeah. or that might just be obi strips or something um i'm not too familiar so so how's the artwork across across these different decades of of music the ones released in the 80s definitely have almost like uh i want to say pop art but it's not pop art almost that windows early 90s thing do you know where it's trying to be futuristic but you look back at it now and it just looks somewhere in between microsoft paint someone grabbing a load of <laughs> someone's googled planet png and just put loads of it's really out there it's it, it's really out there stuff um i think for a lot of so this is something i definitely noticed where the even if a soundtrack had a global release the japan artwork was very different same with like game releases and stuff but yeah the i think the japanese artwork is definitely not as minimalistic as western artwork it seems to be a lot more full-on just very busy yeah. do you know what i mean like awesome. really really busy but yes some of the stuff that i've it just looks it looks amazing like even if i don't play half of this stuff i'm probably going to get some of it framed or whatever else, especially because some of the inserts that came with it have artwork on, you know, the same way soundtrack companies now put a lot of effort into 
putting together original artwork and stuff like that, where there's like game captures or original artwork and yeah, loads of stuff like that. Well, we'll have to make sure that we put together when this episode uh, launches, we'll have to put together like uh, some of your photos on Twitter mm. um, in the thread, in the kind of launch of the episode thread and put some of your photos of your lovely new collection pieces and the you know if you've got any shots of the stores themselves that would be fun fun for people to see and get an idea of the vibe so andy told me that i'd have more luck shopping in turkey i didn't go into that many shops in turkey but i actually got most of my haul just from like a game shop in kyoto where they just had a game soundtrack section so imagine you walk into an independent video game store in the UK or US and just, there's just an entire shelf there dedicated to game soundtracks. And that was where there was a lot of the older stuff and that just blew my mind. Because it was just down a random side street in Kyoto, about a 10-minute walk away from a temple. And we just saw it on the way back and was like, Liz, real sorry. Yep, yep, it's another one. Won't be long. Promise. <laughs> as soon as I'm in there and I see the game soundtrack section, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to be this she's gonna kill me she's gonna kill me um but there was something in there i got i've forgotten the name of the soundtrack but it was a really i picked it up just because it was 100 yen again but then when i did my research into it oh here we go border break special promo fan disc put out by sega exclusively in japan it was only given away during a special campaign at an event the chances of me finding, and I'm looking at the style now, style on Discogs, trans, electro, heavy metal, eclectic. Oh, mate. I like it. I'm going to give that a listen. All your trigger words. Yeah, yeah exactly. All the words. <laughs> so that, that was probably one of the best things that I picked up. Um, and then, not disappointing, but I picked up what I thought was the soundtrack for Metal Gear Solid. I mean, it was called Metal Gear Acid. Yes. And I never actually knew there's a strategy tactical game. <laughs> I think card-based. I don't be- I don't know if they're canon story-wise, but they do have some great music. I was checking them out recently. So, yeah, I think you'll enjoy those. That's the only thing that I need to do now, just get everything burnt onto my Mac. And I guess the only other thing to mention as well, which I was really happy with, um, I'm a big advocate for the music in Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and I happened to find like three or four different versions of the soundtrack from like limited time EPs to the full soundtrack so that really made me happy Um, as well as the Black Mages album that I picked up because I've always wanted one of those so happy to add that to my collection but yeah it's another 60 I think it was 60 soundtracks in total that I came back with Crikey Yeah they're not even on the shelf yet because... (laughs) <laughs> the shelves are full, so something's going to have to go Lizzie stuff. Oh dear! <laughs> uh, and presumably vinyl, vinyl wasn't really an option to to bring back. Just for I, I just thought one. I didn't find any pre-earned game soundtracks. There was a lot of stuff that I already had and already had good distribution. And two, like you were saying, I was just thinking it's not going to make it back in one piece. In yeah, one piece. So I, I just thought against it and just went down the cd route knowing that like we were saying earlier cds are so much bigger in japan than they are like especially here in the uk i can't speak for the us but i think in the west in general so just Mm. happy to pick up loads of stuff that otherwise i mean i think in total i probably spent around 200 quid i think and the majority of that i'd say at least half of that came from paying full price so you know the £10, £12 conversions or whatever for stuff that was brand new at Tower Records. All the pre-owned stuff was cheap as chips, but I think if I was going to buy all of this, if I was going to buy all of this separately from Discogs at the prices that I'm seeing it now that I've added it to my collection, I would have probably spent about a grand, honestly. Yeah. Like, it's absolutely wild. The enriching part, really, is the cultural experience as well. You've kind of seen seen what it's like and how video game music is just revered and, you know, woven into their culture in Japan in a way that it just simply is not, It's certainly in the UK. Mm. So, yeah, just feeling sort of warm and fuzzy and, and nostalgic about old old Japanese video games and, uh, and music. So that's, uh, that's really cool. And, of course, speaking of that, I got to go to the Sonic Symphony and Matt can 
take his headphones off. He can cover his ears. He can go and cry <laughs> quietly in the corner while um, uh, Richard Stokes, uh, video game concert kind of uh, super fan, I would say, and I um, have a quick discussion outside the uh, Barbican Centre where we went to see the first stop on the Sonic Symphony World Tour. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy this little chat with you. It was a bit of a stonker. Richard's been to absolutely every video game concert I've ever heard of that took place in the UK. He's been up and down the country and round and round, where others have amassed huge collections of things. He has spent his money and time collecting experiences, I would say. Rich, what's your uh, what's your initial uh, sort of feedback on that on that show? Uh, my initial reaction is that was a bit nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that was just, I mean, as, I, as you said, I've been to sort of orchestral video game concerts all, all over the country. And that was, that was definitely one I've not experienced before. That was, that was something a bit different. What, what was different? Um, I think, in fact, it, it was literally a concert of two halves. The first yes. half was the purely orchestral stuff, all the, cla- all the old classics. And the second half was just more like a rock show. Yeah, so, so just to clarify for people... Uh, it was one of those video game concerts where they have video game footage all the way through. Um, the orchestra is playing to a click track so that they hit beats in the footage. And I, I personally, from like an arrangements standpoint, would say that the or- orchestral arrangements were very kind of hooky, like lots of melodies yeah. all clumped together, you know, quite short arrangements, like three, two, three, four minutes, yeah. and, and done and just smash out of there. And then the second half... Uh, was it Jun, Jun Senua? Uh, yeah, Jun Senua and Moyo Tani and the video and the video game orchestra guys, Shota Nakama and I can't remember the names of the rest of them. Yeah, so so there was so the rock band came out in the second half. I could barely hear the orchestra, honestly. No, so the orchestra you couldn't hear much of them at all. Second part, that their mics needed to be turned up a little bit more, <laughs> just just a little bit more. Just I don't think you could hear. turn anything up anymore, Rich. Not I think really, you would literally no. blow the roof off. Probably, the, oh. I, well, what do you mean? They haven't blown the roof off already. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and, that, and that lot, I've got to go and go and do the same again tonight as well. So. Yeah, uh, good luck to him. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because the singer, I can't remember his name, I'll, I'll, I'll find out later, but yeah. um, he said at one point, you know, the Sonic fandom, of which yeah. I'm not really a part, apart yeah. from Sonic the Hedgehog 1. Honest, I'm not either so much. I mean, I, I've played a lot of the older games and some of the more recent stuff, but bits in the middle I sort of zoned out for a few years. So yeah. I'll, I'll be honest, some, some of the songs I wasn't quite sure where they came from exactly, but others just through, just through hearing it, through, just through seeing them on YouTube through the fa- and through the streamer fan base. But yeah, so that was yeah, that was definitely an experience I'm not going to forget in a hurry. It was very exciting, and and you know, I, I think they, they finished the Sonic the Hedgehog one Mega Drive medley. That was literally the first thing the show, yeah. and that that's where my recognition of any of the tunes yeah. ended. But and, and for, then for the next one, they went into probably outside of Sonic one, my favourite game in the whole series, which is Sonic CD. Yeah. it's such an underrated game. Uh, the soundtrack is absolutely excellent, and that's basically what we're here for. But, but I mean, I will say the crowd were incredible. Yeah, they were. I've never heard that at a video game concert anywhere. I don't think. Yeah, that they, they were never the crowd noise. That was just ridiculous. They were one Red Bull short of a like a permanent heart attack. The roof, the roof absolutely came off. I mean, people were just screaming, singing, jumping up. And this is a, this is the Barbican. This is a. So this is one of those venues in the UK where the orchestra is king. Here, it's one of those where it's very. You go and see your standard classical concerts. Everyone is all dressed smart and it's all very quiet and very, very, very polite. This was far from it. 
Yeah, I think I, I must. Have, I might have seen a Final Symphony yeah, concert here, and it was a distant, a distant world from that. Yeah, I'd sort of hazard to say that maybe another venue might have been a bit more appropriate for this. Maybe like the Hammersmith Apollo would have been. I think it would have been for that idea because that is used to dealing with a mix of rock combos and orchestras. Whereas the Barbican is, is as I say, it's brilliant for orchestras and things, but for for the, what we saw in the second half, it's it's something it's not really used to that much. So yeah. Anyway, this is probably one of the best venues you can see live music in anywhere in the UK so I didn't think I mean the sound in the second half was a bit of a mush together bit, yeah but then when you've got all of all the, in, all the all the incidents from the rock band all trying to outdo each other it was going to be a little bit like that I think it was yeah. yeah some bits were a little bit lost and some of them some of the stuff on the mics especially from the singers sometimes you couldn't really hear what they were saying I'm not sure that's the point I, I don't think that matters too much yeah. in terms of like the crowd enjoyment from, yeah. from the lyrics but from the orchestral point of view I'm not sure the orchestra even needed to play in the second they were, they were so loud the whole yeah, thing was pretty much I mean and that orchestra was one that I until today I'd not really heard of them so yeah. that was um i think they were the it was a national symphony orchestra of great britain they were called but but how long they've how long they've been formed and what they've done not a clue before today so but they did a pretty good first half of the show so i've got no complaints <laughs> and you've been you would know you've been to you've been to a lot of these things in terms of the fandom i mean i i'm looking around here it is an incredibly diverse crowd yeah. there's it's it's a very gender balanced there's lots of young people there's lots of old people there's lots of people of color it's it's just a very very diverse audience what what do you think about the audience compared to say the fandoms of other games that, of you know concerts you've been to? um for the sort of fandoms definitely as sort of more diverse than i've seen from any other concert by miles by miles, yeah. Um, and I don't think they could. I don't think this could, lot could have sat down to a quiet, symphonic arrangement no, of anything. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I think some of the kids, especially when that second half started, and you had people getting up and dancing and, and waving their arms and and all that. Yeah, it was. Um, it was definitely something that did suited a much uh, a younger and probably a more of a family crowd. Yeah, my, my review would be the first half would be three Red Bulls out of five, and the second half would be six Red Bulls out of five. It was that exciting. Yeah, the second half, they just turned it all the way up to 11. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit nuts. <laughs> and I'm uh, gutted that, that Matt couldn't be here to see it. It breaks my heart because I think he, he was the right person to come to this, not me. But I still really appreciate it. And I have a new found love of the Sonic fandom, if not the games, <laughs> because they just, they absolutely tore the place apart. I mean, yeah, just, mate, just, look for the, just look for the dates and the rest of the tour and just go to another one of them because you seriously you missed out on probably... That's probably one of the best video game concerts I've seen ever, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. Prob- that's probably easily in my... I mean, I said I've been to, like, sort of 20, 30. I think that's easy. That's when it's on my top 10, easy. Easy. That's interesting. I mean, it was... And the thing is, this is the matinee performance mm. that I think they, they must have added because they sold out yeah, the... E- literally, the, the evening performance um, sold out in, I think, about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, just went that quickly. It's ridiculous. I mean, that hence why we came to the afternoon performance because we couldn't get tickets for the evening one. They just sold out so quick. But the thing is, energy-wise, the, the performers left absolutely nothing on the set. I cannot believe no. they're going to come back tonight and give it that same welly because it was they just gave everything. They're going to need to down a few Red Bulls or f- a few energy drinks or whatever kind you want to be able to to be able to match what they did this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not sponsored by Red Bull. It just I just Red Bull kept coming to mind, yeah, even though it's a blue hedgehog. Yeah, other energy drinks are also available. So. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Rich. Um, it's always good to see you at these things. You're always here. You're always, wherever we go to these shows, you're like, a, it's like you look around, it's like, oh, yeah, there's Rich. Because you yeah, just always manage to make it to these things. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm fortunate that I'm only a couple of hours away from London anyway, so most concerts I can get to fairly easily. But I just love video game music in general and um, want to just soak as much of it in as possible, and especially live. Yeah. There's, I mean, yeah. Him in the game has that. You get those. You get those special connections and those special feelings while you're playing the game. But then to relive those feelings in an audience with a load of other fans or experiencing similar things, mm. is you can't beat it. Well, thank you for joining me. That's okay, and thank you for thank you for having me. We've spared Matt the upset. And we're going to move on to Done in 60 Seconds, where we each bring a recommendation. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be soundtrack music. It could be something else. Usually it's probably a track that we've fallen in love with or been jamming on lately. I will go first. I'm going to get my timer set up. 
So, uh, Laced Records has announced the pre-orders for Hitman Codename 47 and Hitman 2 Silent Assassin vinyl that I was doing a lot of the marketing work for. And when I do these marketing uh, reel videos for Instagram and other channels, I pick, try and pick the key punchiest piece of music that I possibly can. Uh, from the soundtrack. And in the case of Codename 47, it seemed obvious that this would be Jesper Kidd's kind of powerful cinematic main theme. Uh, But as a result, I end up listening to this same kind of small loop of it over and over again, hundreds of times trying trying to make these marketing videos. But I must say this one definitely held up. It is a superb track. It's just got his kind of trademark groove, his trademark melody. So I recommend everyone refresh themselves from the year 2000. It's the uh, Hitman Codename 47 main theme. I don't know what I was expecting there, but it <laughs> definitely wasn't that. But <laughs> I really, really like it. And I think it just reiterates how Jesper approaches music and just does all of these weird things with so many different timbres. And I really, really liked it. it that was giving me, um don't know why, but it was reminding me of the music in Time Splitters. Hmm. And I guess almost like Bond on the... N64 to an extent where it just subverts what you're actually expecting. Do you know what I mean? You hear Hitman, you kind of think you're just going to get some almost generic spy music. And that's like four or five different genres. It's almost like a techno electronic club thing going on underneath. Do you know what I mean? And Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's around that time. So Hitman Codename 47 is year 2000. So it's that it's that era, isn't it? It sounds of that era. Like It sounds impressive, actually. For And David Arnold was doing the Bond music at that, back in those days. And I like that a lot. Well done, Jasper. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Matt, set your timer. What have you got for me? One of the biggest announcements, at least as far as I'm concerned, from the PlayStation Showcase, the recent one, was the announcement of DLC for the Resident Evil 4 remake, specifically the Assignment Ada. Is it the Assignment Ada? Is that what it's called? The Separate Ways DLC, which looks like, just like the... Resident Evil 4 Remake has had substantial changes. It looks like they've made some changes to the DLC. Hello, Mr. Wesker. Um, Anyway, that got me thinking about another game in the Resident Evil series, Resident Evil 5. Um, Listen to this music from the multiplayer mode, and the multiplayer mode in Resident Evil 5 was amazing and has this absolute banger of a trance track in there called Rustin' Summer. Here it is. One of the best pieces of music, (laughs) if not the best piece of music ever written for a Resident Evil game. And I stand by that. It's an absolute (laughs) tune. It sits it sits right alongside the uh, the save theme, the original save theme as a a banger. A true banger. Yeah, that's um that's I mean that's a lot of fun. That's just a sort of club club track, but with that slight they still managed to get that sort of slight unease minor chords in there f- to make sure you know it's uh it's a resident evil thing or it's for a, but i mean you know it's not it's a far cry from the origins of the series isn't it no that song that song does not belong in a resident evil game <laughs> it does not belong in a resident <laughs> evil game i know people do uh love the mercenaries mode in uh, resident evil 5 particularly yeah um people are huge fans of it so um it's nice that they get some uh they get some trance to, to keep them going. Mm. 
Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the GXM podcast. Thanks so much for joining us as we explore the intersection between video games and music. Please be sure to subscribe because, as I teased earlier, we have some excellent interviews coming up. We're back on the we're back on the schedule. We're back and uh, and raring to go uh, at fortnightly. So please be sure to also maybe if you get the chance, give us a review on your podcast service of choice. That just helps people find us. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at GXM Podcast. I'm at T Quilfell on X slash Twitter. That's T Q U I L L F E L D T. Matt is at Matt Ombler on Twitter X. That's Matt with only one T. If you've got any feedback, hit us up at gxmpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The show was produced by both of us. It was edited by me and music is by Zach Foster. Thanks very much to our interviewee, Richard Stokes. You've got to, you've got to wait for the drop just because the drop is... The drop is gorgeous. It's so good.